My senior year of college, I spent a semester in Russia, in Moscow. And if you've ever been to Russia, uh, you know that the, uh, the landscape is, is pockmarked with the cupolas and churches and monasteries. And one of them that was there was called the Novodevichy Monastery, just outside of Moscow, uh, just outside of the, the dormitory where I stayed. And we would frequent there often just to walk among the, the gardens and the cemeteries and to see things as a, as a culture that had been built on Jesus for over a thousand years, what it would produce. And as I was walking through one of the, the gardens that day, there was a, a shuffling noise I heard off to my um, side, and I saw the corner of my eye um, this man who was on his knees on the steps leading up into the, the na- main chapel. And he was on his knees, and he would do the sign of the Orthodox cross, and then he would get up and get on his knees again and go to the next step. And he would do the sign of the cross again, and he would pray, and then he would get on his knees again and go up to the next step. And so he's ascending this very long staircase, one step at a time, on his knees, and he's doing the sign of the cross, and he's praying for every step, just on his way there. And to this point in my own spiritual pilgrimage, I think that faith mostly lived in my head at the moment, at that time. But for this man, faith was on his knees. And what that spoke to me, coming from a very different tradition, was a kind of reverence for which I had no category. He was not standing in the awe of God, but kneeling. And I think what he was communicating in that moment is a very biblical notion that shows up in many places in the Old and New Testament, this phrase that you often hear called the fear of the Lord. And we all wonder what we hear when we hear that. What does that mean when we hear it? And if, if you are here today and, and, and you were drug along and you're just sitting here because somebody else asked you to do that and you hear about the fear of the Lord, you might think to yourself, wow, some God you have there that has to sort of terrify you into submission. And then there might be others of you in this room who, who have lived in the church for a long time and know of Jesus and, and, thought, and, and are thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I, wait a, I, I thought it was perfect love casts out all fear. So h- h- how does this work? What is the point? And I think, like most things these days, uh, people like to assign definitions and motives to phrases before they really try to understand. We have been listening to Israel's greatest hits for this summer. We've been listening to the Psalms, the Psalms that they would sing as they would ascend to Jerusalem to worship three times out of the year at least. And the Psalm that we're going to listen to this morning has as its focus the fear of the Lord. But rather than leave it without definition, it's actually going to define it, and at the same time, it's going to explain what its good is, namely that by it, blessing comes. And that might seem seem like a vast paradox, if not a contradiction in terms, that by the fear of the Lord, I might be blessed in him. But I, I dare say, if we want to be good students of what we find in this text, whether you believe in it or not, you must take it on its own terms. And so we will. And so we're going to consider the fear of the Lord in three ways. What is it? What blessings come from it? And then, to put it in a little clunky way, how how do you get that fear? (laughs) I, I get fear really easily, but how do I get this fear? That's what we're going to do. We're in Psalm 128. And at this point, I have no idea whether there's been a video recording of this reading or if I'm going to do it myself. So, if you'll stand anyway... 
looks like I'm on. <laughs> Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the fearful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Now, for me to begin with that story uh, of of this gentleman ascending the stairs on his knees, praying all the way, you might think <laughs> that seems a little over the top. In fact, I, I, as I prepared the sermon, I remembered a, a line from a Mary Oliver poem that I quoted to you a couple years ago where, where she said this, uh, you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Like I've said that, like I, I've quoted that for you. And then I open with this story. And I think, they're not necessarily contradicting one another. I think what that gentleman was doing that day in 1994 was trying to approach God with a certain understanding of who God was. That when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, it is, it is not something that is simply out to um, enforce something upon us. It is to help us to both think about the Lord and act in a way before the Lord that is not merely casual. Now, uh, casual by definition means you don't have to think much about it. So when we say casual Fridays or casual Mondays or whatever it might be, it means you don't have to really think about what I'm going to, what do I do this and does the tie go here and you know, how long does the cuff have to be? All of those thoughtful considerations that you give to things, casual just means I don't have to think about it much. And there's nothing wrong with the word casual. There's plenty of applications of the word casual. But when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, it's out to help us not think of, the God, uh, think of God thoughtlessly. That the fear of the Lord at its bottom is something about thoughtful respect, and it has nothing to do with dress codes. It has everything to do with an inner posture, an inner way, an inner disposition of how we regard him. It's a, it's a matter of thoughtful respect. I mean, I'd like you to imagine for a moment, everybody in this room has somebody that they most admire. Uh, maybe it's somebody that you've met. Maybe it's somebody that you've never met. Maybe it's somebody that has cared for you. Maybe it is somebody that has mentored you. W maybe there's somebody that's deeply sacrificed for you. But there's somebody in your world, no matter how old you are, that you most deeply admire. Now, I'd like you to imagine you sitting in your living room, I don't know, watching a television show, even something as good as This Is Us, right? And, and that person, unannounced, shows up at your door. And you see them and you make eye contact, and they're ready to greet you and to catch up, and you say to them, hey, hang on a second, can you wait for the commercial to come? Like, that's, that's nervous laughter right there, right? Like you, would, like, you would never do that. This person that you most admire, you would push them off until commercial comes. You wouldn't do that. Well, friends, look, if you wouldn't do that with the person that you most admire, then why would you act casually to the Lord who allegedly has been responsible for an observable universe that is 93 billion, mi 93 billion light years in diameter? You wouldn't. You can't. This kind of thoughtful respect is what drives the idea of the fear of the Lord. And that is why you will hear Isaiah say in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, a man of people of unclean lips. It is why you will hear Peter say, the first time he even encounters Jesus on the boat, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. 
It is why Jacob, after he has had his vision of, of, of the ladder descending from heaven, he says unto himself as he gets up from his dream, Surely the Lord is in this place. What an awesome thing it is. The fear of the Lord is, is a thoughtful kind of respect that drives a holy kind of awe. Now, I've, I've told you those things. I'm, I'm going to show you now. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you through some... Through, let me just give you some images. What is the fear of the Lord? Um, inevitably, you've seen on YouTube uh, one of these scenes. This is just a clip from it of, of the kid behind plate glass looking at the lion, right? right? And the lion, you know, pouncing away in all of its majesty and its strength and its power and its beauty, right? Um, and then there's the kid on the other side of the plate glass window and at sometimes the lion will lunge at it, right? <laughs> like, glad that, that there's three inches of plate glass right there in between the two. What is the fear of the Lord? It is a sense of, of power and strength that you do not want to get on the wrong side of. That's the fear of the Lord. You've got to take all of these four images sort of as a composite. Not any one of them stands in for the perfect picture of what the fear of the Lord is, but there's one. But let me give you another one. When I was in, in, in high school choir in 1984, they, they actually took us to go see Peter Weir's Mozart, or Amadeus. Anybody see Amadeus? Yeah. God, you should see. I, I was changed after that. I was 13. I was a stupid 13-year-old. And but, but there's a moment, if you know that storyline of Salieri, who is, who's Mozart's contemporary, who, who uh, he, was, he had his own career. I mean, the, the story kind of expands the disparity between Mozart and Salieri. But Salieri was a, was a, was a composer, and, and one day Mozart's wife comes to Salieri um, to see if, if she could sell some of his, his compositions. They were in need of money, and, and Salieri has never met Mozart. He's never met Mozart's wife, and, and he begins to look through these compositions, and he being a composer himself, he can already hear the music in his head about what he's reading in the manuscripts, and he is floored by it. He is absolutely mesmerized. Gosh, if we had time, I'd show you the clip. I just don't have time. He he's just mesmerized by what he finds there, and, and, and he's so lost in the moment about what he's seen on the page that all of the music just sort of falls to the ground. And, and, and Mozart's wife looks at him, and she goes, do they not please you? And he goes, no, they very much please me. And he goes, can, can I have these copies? And she goes, these aren't copies. These are first drafts. And he is, he is blown away. And friends, I think that's a picture of the fear of the Lord. When you are in the presence of a brilliance that you will never attain, that's the fear of the Lord. Now here's a vastly different image from a film that prepared me to meet my wife. <laughs> but if you ever saw Hall, Always with Holly Hunter, you know it takes place, it's this, it's this uh, forest fighting community that works in, that, that flies airplanes and puts out forest fires, right? And and uh, she's um, the girlfriend of Richard Dreyfuss, and they're both, they're both pilots. And um, so, you know, you, you fly and you, you dig uh, uh, fire trenches and forest fires. You're all grubby, nasty all the time. But on that day, it's her birthday, right? And on that day, Richard Dreyfuss gives her a box. It's a birthday dress, and it's that dress. And, and she goes back to the bathroom, and she puts it on, and she emerges, and, and it's just this wonderful moment that only Steven Spielberg can create, and, and she wants to dance. And what does everybody in the room want to do? They want to dance with her. And so you've got all these dudes, grubby, grimy, nasty, that are approaching her. And she goes, ah! Mm -mm -mm -mm. You wash up first. Friends, that's the fear of the Lord. When you're in the presence of a beauty that you dare not wish to besmirch. That's the fear. Please don't truncate the fear and, and the, you know, flatten it down into something that simply sounds like terror. Let me give you one more, but this one I'm going to show you. 
But Bilbo is about to leave the Shire, and he's going to leave the ring behind. He knows he should, and yet he feels the ring's pull. And here in this moment, his encounter with Gandalf. Keep your eye on Gandalf. There are many magic rings in this world, Bilbo Baggins, and none of them should be used lightly. If it's just a bit of fun. Oh, you're probably right, as usual. You will keep an eye on Frodo, won't you? Two eyes. Yes. As often as I can spare them. I'm leaving everything to him. What about this ring of yours? Is that staying too? Yes, yes. Say an envelope over there on the mantelpiece. No. Wait, it's... here in my pocket. Isn't that, isn't that odd now? Yeah, after all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? I think you should leave the ring behind, Bilbo. Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. Now it comes to it. I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. There's no need to get angry. Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine. My own. My precious. Precious? It's been called that before, but not by you. Well, what business is it of yours when I do with my own things? I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself? Come on, Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Oh. All your long years, we've been friends. Trust me, as you once did. Let it go. That's it. If he has to terrify you of what you are holding on to so desperately because you think you will never be happy without it, he will frighten you. But not because he's out to harm you, but because he loves you. There is a kind of trepidation that one might have from offending him that is supposed to give way to the very thing that Bilbo does, is to run into his arms endearingly. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what it is. And it's, it's exactly what the psalmist says here. Those who are in the fear of the Lord and who walk in his ways, meaning who don't treat anything else as if it were a God, but only treat him who is God. That's the fear of the Lord. That's it, simply. That's what it is. And, and that in and of itself is its own blessing, but the psalmist is not done with the kinds of blessing that comes with it. So let's talk about those blessings. And each of the blessings here, they, they kind of operate in concentric circles, kind of each more personally, and then we branch out to something greater. And they're in, in three ways. And in the first sense, the, the blessing that comes with the fear of the Lord is very personal. 
And it has everything to do with the labor that you give yourself to whatever it may be. So he says in verse 2, Blessed is everyone who fears in the Lord. You shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Some of you are gardeners. We pretend that we are. Um, and if you've gardened, you, you cleared the land, you laid down soil, um, you prepared it, you incorporated the compost, you watered it, you seeded it, you, you washed it, you, careful, you, you cared for it, and then maybe it sprouted. And maybe things grew. And, and maybe things have begun to ripen. And, and maybe it's just my experience, I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's yours too, that if you cut into that tomato, if you slice it, and you salt it, and then you savor it, friends, that's a different experience than if you bought it at Ingalls. There was fruit of your labor. Uh, not to be too self-indulgent, but three weeks ago, I replaced an alternator on my car. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. There's only two reasons I could, YouTube and Brad Green. Okay, now I did it, but they helped. But I will tell you, when I had Savannah come out and turn the ignition, and it hummed, to glory, and the serpentine belt did not come off everything. In that moment, it was satisfaction. There was blessing in it. Okay, what does gardening and replacing an alternator have to do with the fear of the Lord? What's the very first mandate that God gives Adam and Eve in that primordial moment? It says, go, go be fruitful and multiply and, and, and have dominion, which too many people have, have interpreted as, use it however you want it, it's yours, if you exploit it, that's your problem. No, it's to cultivate it. It's to care for it. It's to tend it. It's to do right by it, that it might deliver its fruit for you, but not just for you. That's, that's stewardship, and we were made for it. And that's one of the first mandates that we're given. Friends, when, when you are caring for a garden or when you are replacing an alternator, you are tapping into something that is primordial. You are tapping into that original mandate to care for everything that is yours which has been entrusted to you, what you are feeling in your bones in that moment is the echoes of Eden, to mix metaphors very badly. It is to feel something that you can't put your finger on. And it's good. And you are glad. And in that there is satisfaction. And it comes by the fear of the Lord because you are the one who's been entrusted with things that you, by virtue of being made in his image, are now trying to live out. That's the first blessing. That's the first place in which that fear comes. Now let's, let's widen the circle a little bit. Let's talk about family. Um, anybody ever see While You Were Sleeping, 1995? We're, going, we're, we're doing the gambit of films this week, aren't we? Right? You know, she's a, she takes tokens at the subway. There's this beautiful guy that she's got a crush on that comes by and buys her a token every day, never you know, asks her name, anything like that. He gets mugged. He hits his head. He goes into a coma. She shows up to help him, and she gets confused. It's sort of the Shakespearean comedy. She gets confused with being somebody who's associated with her. She follows you know, his ambulance to the hospital. He, again, he's in a coma, and somehow, through a turn of events, people begin to think that she's his fiance, right? So the guy's in a coma. Everybody says that she's her fiancé, and she's not telling them otherwise, right? So the family shows up, and they go, oh, your fiancé, this is so great, right? And so they, they start to bring her into her family, into, into their family, and she's like, oh, gosh, what am I going to tell them the truth? So Christmas Eve comes around, and here's this scene, and she's there, and, and they're all enjoying each other, and I, tell, I, I remember the scene, I just remember the scene. She's just looking around the room. Nobody's talking to her. They, they're all enjoying, she's just enjoying their company, but she's just gazing at the moment. She is... She is reveling in this 
place of warmth and welcome and comfort and and friends, that's its own illustration for another time, either of, of, of the extended family or of the church family. We'll talk about it. But in that moment, there is blessing. And as you heard alluded to last week when, when Andrew preached from Psalm 127 about, about children and about family, so so today. In, with the fear of the Lord comes the blessing in terms of family, both in marriage and in children. So let's, let's break one of those down, each of those really quickly and, 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 and simply. Why would the fear of the Lord benefit marriage. I mean, you and I both know any number of people who, who would never the darken the doorstep of this place. Never. And, and would give not a second thought to the idea of anything divinity holding anything together. Whose marriages seem like they're thriving. So, seem like they're pretty strong and they've been going for however many decades. We know those stories. You know those stories. I know those stories. So, what good would the fear of the Lord have for a marriage? If you leave marriage, as we presently understand it, to itself, then you won't be faulted for beginning to think of it sort of as like a contract, an arrangement that two people make. Um, I'm in, you in, I'm in, you're in, good, we're in. And then um, if one or both people start to go, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm in anymore, then like, okay, well, I guess then we can rescind this. If you, if you conceive of it in that way as a contract, just some sort of arrangement. But when you, when you introduce the idea of the fear of the Lord and that you are accountable and answerable unto, unto him, then you, you reconceive of what marriage is. It's no longer this contract. Now it's a covenant. Now it's this, it's this thing that you're making a vow to one another um, in the presence of others in order to say unto them, there's going to be plenty of days when I'm not in on this. And I bet you the same will be for you. But come what may, to borrow a line from Moulin Rouge, we're in this together. But you are saying in that moment, I am answerable and accountable to someone greater than myself. I am answerable and accountable to someone greater than you. I am answerable and accountable to something greater than this thing that whatever we call marriage. I mean, let the Supreme Court define marriage how they will. If it's a covenant, it changes the way you think of it. And it also changes about maybe either the haste with which you enter into it or even how you think about what it is when it gets hard. And newsflash, spoiler alert, marriage is hard. The, the, the most recent and vivid picture, I think of what it means to live in the fear of the order with respect to marriage happened about a month ago. We were in Savannah. We went outside Savannah, Georgia. And anybody ever been to Bonaventure Cemetery outside of Savannah? Yeah, it's this 300-year-old cemetery. The people that built Savannah are, are buried there, and it's, and it's still a functioning cemetery. And it's where it's beautiful places like that. But there was a moment where we, out of the corner of our eye, we, we noticed, is that a wedding happening? There's a wedding happening in a cemetery. I mean, it's a great place. Nobody's going to complain about the noise. But... Um, <laughs> It's a great spot. We thought to ourselves, was this a goth wedding? I mean, I didn't see any black eyeliner. It was not like, I do, I do too. It was none of that. Um, <laughs> did I offend anyone? I'm sorry. Um, so I said, Christy, get a picture before they leave. And there she is, white dress, he's coat. There's a photo photographer. It's like, it's a wedding. And, and maybe it's a thing in Savannah. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they believe. But I, if you think about it for a second, here's the deal. I can't think of a better place for two people to make a vow that says till death do us part than to do so among the dead. 
Because in that moment, you're making a very grave choice. That, <laughs> all right, uh, it's for you, Brad. I'll be here all week. Um, <laughs> I don't know what they believe. I don't even know their faces. And it's a good thing I didn't catch their faces. They, I might be in trouble for that. But the, the point is, when you live in the fear of the Lord, you are saying unto another person, I am with you. And I'll have to answer to him. And so it serves you. I know it's hard, but it serves you. That's marriage. What about kids? I mean, in this, in, in, honestly, you know, the text is very, very much describing the, the flourishing in a household, and your wife will be fruitful, and your children, you'll be like olive shoots around the table. And, you know, at first you think, okay, so the fear of the Lord, you know, results in a large family. You know, maybe it will. Who knows? The, the, the plentifulness of that family is, is, Certainly in that day was a big deal, right? Because the bigger the family, the, the more help you had, the more assistance you had against, you know, warring factions coming through your land. Um, but there was a blessing in and of itself just to have those people around your table. And he says, that's the blessing. And, but it's got to be more than just the number of people that are there. Because what does Malachi say? Why, why does the, Mal- the prophet Malachi says, why did God bless marriage to bring forth godly offspring? That there is a wonder in that. That there is a, a glory in that. And, okay, here's the deal. If you're a parent, if you're a mentor, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, you know the blessing inherently, intrinsically, about the, the children for whom you are responsible. Uh, you know that. Nobody had to tell you, you know, this is a good job if you can get it. You, you know that. And yet, there are other days, like Toby on This Is Us, who said this, I love my kids, but I don't love spending 10 hours a day with them. Um, the few times I've done it, time has moved very, very slowly. You, you, you know that feeling. You know that feeling. So how can the fear of the Lord be a blessing unto you if, if, if you're responsible for children in any way, whether they're biological or not? Um, I'll never forget something I heard from Sinclair Ferguson, a good Scotsman who is a preacher, who is a preacher, um, who says, um, if our faith be true, there's only two things that are last for eternity, the word of God and the souls of your children. Yeah, and I have to remember that because most times I forget that. And if you have the fear of the Lord in that, it, it helps you to remember it on the days in which the circumstances would otherwise help you forget it. It just changes the character of the way you, you conceive of what it is that is there sitting around your table. I need it, you need it. That's the second circle. Here's the last not only is there blessing with the fear of the Lord in terms of your personal life, your personal labors, and also for the family that, that you may have, whether it's a church family or a biological family, but it also has an impact on the way you think about society. And uh, granted, uh, the psalmist is speaking into a moment that is a, what we would call a theocracy, where God is at the center of all things. God is not only the, the spiritual beacon, he's the, he's the civic beacon, the civic authority, and therefore we don't have a concept of that. We, are, we exist in a pluralistic culture. We do not live in a theocracy. And yet, I would say that if you think about it long enough, the fear of the Lord would really serve a pluralistic culture. There's a lot of um, arguing these days in which there is no listening. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of regret this day, these days, in which there's not really any repentance. And I would say, 
and I think you'd agree, that there's this idea of, of justice that is very strong and potent and understandable in which has been severed from the idea of forgiveness. And, um, you know, arguing without listening is pointless. Um, re- regret without repentance is, a, is just talk. And, and justice without the possibility of forgiveness is hell. Rachel Den Hollander, it being the Olympics, was on the United States Olympic gymnast team, and she was one of those countless girls that were abused by the team doctor. And I've referenced her voice before. And she wrote an article recently about justice from the perspective of a Christian. And, and she said this in the essay. She said this. Biblical justice compels us to see ourselves on both sides of God's justice. We must move to uphold righteousness and see that sin is condemned, crime punished, and victims restored, while at the same time refraining from viewing criminals and abusers as other or fundamentally different from ourselves. For evil lies within our hearts as well. What our present moment, and perhaps other moments, have sought to rend asunder, justice and forgiveness, it's either one or the other, the fear of the Lord brings them together and holds them together in tension because it must. Because he is just. And you're going to hear more about that next week in Psalm 129. But in that just nature, there is a mercy that we have to reckon with. And with the fear of the Lord, those things that don't seem to often go together are held together as struggling as that might be. Those are the blessings that come from a fear of the Lord. And as soon as I say that, you think, well, that's great. Who can do that? I mean, how do, how do I get that kind of fear? <laughs> to, again, to put it in a clunky way. Because you and I both know one kind of fear, and that's just the fear of being condemned, of being ostracized, of being ridiculed. Um, we know that fear. We, we flinch at that fear, or we get fearsome in that fear. We, it's all, we get all fight club in that fear. Um, we know that. But there's another kind of fear where, where you're not just afraid of judgment, kind of like a slave to a master. You're, you're afraid of, of violating something beautiful that is between you. You are like Bilbo in the moment, afraid of, of besmirching what you have with your wizard. So how do we get that kind of fear? Um, we want something that reminds us of things that we are properly to be fearful of, but with always being assured that we belong. And where do we get that? Gandalf strikes me as somebody that we might listen to, but friends, who do you think Gandalf was patterned after? Gumby? Uh, Gandalf the Grey dies and is resurrected as Gandalf the White? Hmm, sounds familiar. Slightly familiar. Friends, this Jesus who died, he died to gain a wayward bride that she might bear spiritual fruit. This Jesus died that we might become children of God around a table that is larger than the world. This Jesus struck the proper balance of deep reverence for his Father and deep love. Friends, you cannot look at the cross 
and think to yourself that we just needed an example. You can't look at the cross and just think, ah, apparently we needed a pep talk. You have to look at the cross and realize that there was something deeper in us, that the devil is in too deep, to borrow a phrase. And something profound must intervene on our behalf, and we should be terrified if he didn't. But at the same time that you're looking at the cross and realizing that it was more than an example, you also have to look at the cross and you can't believe that God is merely tolerant of you. That that love didn't emerge after Jesus died for you. It was that love that sent him there. And when you hear that, and you interpret that, and you internalize that, then you know the fear of the Lord. You look to the one who embodied it and who by his life, death, and resurrection helps to implant that in us by his spirit. Do you have to climb the stairs of a chapel on your knees in order to have the fear of the Lord? No. Does the fear of the Lord ever properly send you to your knees more often than perhaps you're acquainted? Would that be reasonable? Yeah. And that's where we're coming to the table. Because that's where we see our reason for fear properly described and motivated. He is crazy about you. And he wants you to be more afraid of the things that you should be properly afraid of. And he wants you to let go of those things that you think you need. Because he loves you. Let's pray. Help us to believe, to properly fear you in the fullness of what that means with the courage to do so, but mostly with the humility. In Jesus' name, amen.